Pope Benedict XVI presents us with a profound view of the last days of Jesus Christ and his resurrection in his new book, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, From the Entrance into Jerusalem to the Resurrection. How do we receive this gift from the Holy Father so as to change our own lives? Today we'll explore the Pope's book on the Passion, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus with our special guest, moral theologian, Dr. Michael Terrian. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, President Emeritus of Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Talking about the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have our regular panelists here, Dr. Regis Martin, professor here of systematic theology, and Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical theology. And we have our special guest today, Dr. Michael Terrian, who indeed is a professor of moral theology himself and academic dean at St. Vincent Seminary in Latrobe. And you hold a master's in theology from here, Franciscan University, and a licentiate in sacred theology from the International Theological Institute for studies on marriage and the family. And finally, a doctorate of sacred theology for the University of Freiburg. So, the big question, why? You know. We've been talking about Jesus of Nazareth a long time, and he's the preaching and the teaching, and suddenly the Pope's writing a Jesus of Nazareth series. What inspired this? How did it come about? Yeah, well, it, it seems to me that uh, there's really no better age than our own to once again proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes it's good for the church to take time to just reflect yeah. on who Jesus is yeah. and who he is for us today. Yeah. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't write about Christ, then you might as well pack up, uh, strike the tent, and get out of town. I mean, the essence of, of Christianity is not an idea. Uh, it's not a plan of action. Uh, it's not a system of thought. It's a person, the person of Christ. Take him out and the whole thing collapses. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no better topic than yeah. Jesus. Right. I would say there's no better time than right. the present. Yeah. But there's no better writer than the Pope. Yeah. Yeah. And not just because That's he's right. doing the same thing as the successor to Peter, as Peter did in his epistles, but because this Pope is situated, I think, in a way that is divinely providential to represent the very best voice for the church to address what is in some ways one of the most difficult subjects, and that is how do we read the Bible in a postmodern age? Yeah. Can we still trust it? And he shows, yes, we can, not just despite our scholarship, but precisely because of good, grounded yeah. scholarship. And, and, you know, few men have written so much or so well yeah. uh, about Christ as mm. the present uh, Pope. Right. Uh, and, and I think you were telling us before the break 
that uh, he is uniquely voluminous uh, in uh, the writings he has, uh, he has generated over the years. Yeah, I mean, you can look down the string of more than 200 popes, and nobody had written as much as he did yeah. before becoming pope. Before pope, that was the right. part That's of right. it. That's right. And yeah. I mean, he was the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, you know, that was appointed by John Paul precisely because John Paul recognized his singular genius. Yeah. That right. this man is not only capable of grasping the Old Testament, the new, patristic and medieval, but then applying it to the crises and all of the issues right. of our day. Right. And I, I don't but, think, too, we can forget about the context within which this man writes and his yeah. background, his history, uh, being from Germany, living through all of the very uh, important events of the 20th century, um, also just being well-schooled in uh, an intellectual tradition that in many respects has created many of the problems that the church faces yeah. today intellectually. Um, and so here's a, here's a man, a priest, and now Pope, who knows yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, the threads and the narrative of yeah. mo modernity, post-modernity so yeah. well, yeah. and so he can speak precisely to the issues of our day, but yeah. in a way that perhaps a hundred years ago, leaders in the church yeah. were not yet able to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very challenging question, uh, but he brings to the task, I, I think, a happy combination of, on the one hand, vast erudition, uh, he has yes. uh, mined the scriptures uh, so thoroughly. But on the other hand, an utterly simple, childlike uh -huh. faith right. uh, yeah. in Christ. Well, and that's, I think this is one of the beautiful things about this book in particular is that he really, he really writes the book at two levels. If you're a scholar, you can follow along with what he's yeah, saying okay. because yeah. he makes lots of references to all of the debates and discussions going on in, in the academy today and for the past hundred years or so. But at the same time, he really knows how to bring home the message for just your typical Catholic right. who right. wants to sit down and do a, a careful and thorough reading of, yeah. of this book. Well, St. John said, ignorance of scripture, St. Jerome, is ignorance of Christ. Yeah. And so much in speculative theology has moved away uh, from being founded and grounded in Scripture, and he's heading us back there. Yeah, that's, I mean... Yeah, we've sure. lost sight of uh, the figure of Christ, what Henry James calls the figure in the carpet, the, the, the centrality of the person of Christ. I, I, I remember in Rome years ago, I bumped into a, a friend of mine who was finishing up his studies at the Biblicum, and uh, he had mastered about a dozen languages, including uh. Aramaic, and I said, gosh, this must really enhance your prayer life. Yeah. And he said, oh, we never talk about prayer. Yeah. We don't talk about God. <laughs> we bracket those questions. I, I felt as if maybe yeah. I had introduced an indecency uh, into the conversation. I mean, right. in scientific scripture circles, God is, is sort of irrelevant. They're interested in the words uh, on right. the page, but not the word that is somehow mysteriously disclosed and revealed through this medium of language. Yes. You know, the, um, the idea of Christ is not to be confused with Christology. You know, the yeah. study of Christ yeah. is one yeah. thing, but the contemplation of Christ. You know, Scripture is indispensable for coming to know Jesus. And yet, for the last 50 years at least, I would say, the majority of Catholic theologians 
have not been studying Christ and Scripture so much as they've been studying other theologians. Right. You know, right. they have the school of Lonergan or the school of yeah. Rahner or perhaps yeah. even the school of von Baldassar. Yeah. And it ends up becoming a kind of theologianology right. where you're studying theologians instead of God, right. instead right. of the Son of God, yeah. instead I mean, of the Word of God. I mean, and that's the one thing Benedict uh, gets right. right. I mean, yeah. St. Thomas was right. not a Thomist. I mean, he that's was right. anchored <laughs> to Christ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if you remove him, then everything, right. everything disintegrates. Well, it, you know, one of the things that uh, I think poses itself as the biggest challenge of our age is precisely the fact that we really don't know who Christ is anymore. Yeah. And, and a lot of the reason for that is that we don't know who we are anymore yeah. within the context of our own narrative, our own story, our own history. Yeah. And so when we go to the uh, scriptures, when we go to the gospels in particular, uh, I think we're oftentimes faced with a text that really doesn't make sense to us, yeah. moderns or postmoderns. And it takes, uh, it takes a lot of, um, you know, sort of, I don't want to say schooling in the worst sense, but yeah. uh, we need to be reintroduced to who this person is right. and who this person is within the context of uh, our, our tradition, not only in the Catholic faith, but also yeah. in the West and right. in the world, in the yeah. entire world. I mean, who right. is Jesus? Right. Uh, yeah. And it's a difficult question to answer because uh, in the past, I would say, three or four hundred years, uh, the story of our our past has been totally rewritten, right. Right. and so yeah. we have a we suffer from a kind of amnesia now, yeah. Yeah. and that's why I think uh, this book and other works uh, the, on Christ that are coming out uh, have become very illuminating because they've been able to, in many ways, reconstruct yeah. uh, the world in a in a proper way of Jesus's right. times and and allow us to hear Jesus's words in some sense for the first time, right, right. brand new, but in yeah. a way that helps us to really understand what he meant, what and, he was saying. And particularly that he's king. You know, in our highly democratic society, yeah. Yeah. we kind of push off yeah. royalty as being special and here, central as uh, Pope Benedict presents it is, Jesus announces that he's king. Yeah. And Lord. Yeah, he, I mean, he announces the kingdom not as something outside or external to himself, but in the midst of, of this profane world, here is the kingdom. It has broken through. I am the enfleshment, uh, the very monstration of God himself. That, that's an extraordinary claim. I mean, right. I mean, talk about the audacity of hope. Right. You this know, is right off the page. <laughs> Lausie mentioned back in the 1890s, you know, as the voice of skepticism, he said, Christ proclaimed the kingdom, but he left us the church, you know, and for yeah. him, that was right. the closing line of a book, but it was yeah. really the sound of despair. Right. It was the note of skepticism. Yeah. And what Ratzinger said before he became Benedict, and now what Benedict is saying ever more clearly than ever, and that is, is he proclaimed the kingdom, and what he delivered to us was the king, the Holy Eucharist. Yeah. You know, when we, when we contemplate the mystery of Christ's sacrifice through the eyes of faith, it doesn't just proved to be spiritually more satisfying right. than skepticism, it also proves to be scientifically superior when it comes to making right. sense out of the text of yeah. Scripture. Right. And, and right. what do you do if you consign the church to a kind of dumpster? It's the uh. trash heap. Right. Uh, what, what do you do with the book which the church wrote? Why do we venerate this book? Because it's God's word about himself and about the world in relation to him. It's not man's book about God, 
certainly not man's book about man. God is the author. Uh, the source right. is God. He's speaking his word. Yeah. And, and as Dei Verbum puts it, it's the speech of God beneath the breath of the Spirit. Right. Right. That, that's well, the, an extraordinary the, thing. Uh, the irony, though, in what, in, in what we're saying here is that Jesus' portrayal of the kingdom and his own kingship so utterly destroys the categories by which we would try to understand yeah. kingship and yeah. kingdom. And it seems that uh, in recent memory, the attempt is always to try to explain him in terms of categories which at the end of the day make no sense for yeah. what he presents to us. So he really we, turns the world upside so down. So how are we to respond to a king? Jesus, you know, yeah. what's, the, what's the proper Well, well with love, and submission, <laughs> submission. Yeah. we submission, move in docility right. and reverence uh, uh, in the face of this self-revealing world. Right. I think we also have to express our honest bewilderment yeah. at the mystery that the King of Kings reigns from the wood of the cross. Yeah. Benedict is quoting Augustine, yeah. reigning from the wood of the cross. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. isn't just upsetting categories. I mean, that just tears yeah. the fabric of monarchy as, 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 as human history right. records it. But at the same time, I think it rewrites it in a way that is far more compelling because you recognize then that what is supreme in God is not power. Right. You know, what is preeminent in Christ is not knowledge. Sure, he's stronger than the rest of us. Sure, he's smarter than all of us put together. But what is supreme in God is a love that is willing to look weak and appear foolish in the world yeah. in order to really put us to shame because the primary problem is pride. Yeah. And, and so love really expresses itself on the cross more yeah. profoundly you know, than all of the wisdom of the philosophers. Yeah. And he yeah. nails this yeah. right. in a way that you just want to contemplate, you want to go yeah. back and reread yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, Scott, you, you seize upon really the central paradox of faith, uh, the crucified God. Right. I mean, there is a scandal, no more shocking than which right. uh, can be imagined. Right. And, so, and so, I mean, in terms of this issue of submission, we aren't submit, submitting ourselves to a king who lords it over us, right. but precisely a king whose whole, whose whole being and whose whole purpose and mission is to give himself to us. So it's all for us and all on our behalf right. that he does. That's right. It's not an inferior kingdom. Right, I mean, right. love is more powerful than brute force. Right, right, love yeah. is much more intelligible than just sheer knowledge. Right. And so, you know, but I, I think we have to acknowledge what you just said, and that is, you look at the cross, it's a profound symbol, but it is utterly incomprehensible, as he points out, apart from the Eucharist. Because is. the cross is not a sacrifice to right. any Jew. Right. It took place outside the walls of Jerusalem. Yeah. It was far from the temple. There were no altars, there yeah. were no priests. So for Jews witnessing it, there was no sacrifice. The only way you can derive a sacrifice from yeah. Calvary is by backing up and looking at it in, what, in, the, in the light of what he did in the upper room when he instituted the Eucharist. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just rhetoric when he says, this is my body which will be given. Right. It's not oh, just yeah. ritual, this, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He shows us that on Thursday, he's already giving his life. Yeah. So that on Friday, he isn't losing it. Right. Yeah. He already made it a gift, you know. Yeah. The Eucharist is the only light that illuminates the mystery of a death, which is not the loss of life, so but the gift of life get into the mystery deeper through the Eucharist That's right. than we can through all. You know, he's a king who 
Yeah. Yeah. Without the Eucharist, you're looking at stained glass windows from the sidewalk. Yeah, Yeah, they're pretty opaque. Well, and and, and I think the thing about the Eucharist is that it it is eminently personal. So it isn't just that Jesus gives himself to all of humanity, sort of in this corporate understanding, but he also, through the Eucharist, is able to unite himself to each and every individual person in all of the complexities and all of the challenges and all of the struggles and triumphs and Even if you had been the only person on the planet, he would have come for you to suffer and die. Yeah, that's, that's that's how special we are. It is overwhelming. But it comes right into our pain and that's what's so important that, uh, that Jesus walked through the pain and he walks us through it. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, well, he, uh, you know, I mean, this is a big theme of Pope Benedict's is the whole question of suffering. Yeah. And what do we do with suffering? And what has God done with suffering? And how does he transform it yeah. and make it something redemptive, something yeah. that actually in the end is life-giving to yeah. us rather than... Yeah. So yeah. when we come back, we'll find out how we're supposed to proceed and uh, follow God's will for our lives. Stay yeah. with us. What the Pope points out is that um, our Lord's words are actually the first line from Psalm 22, and this is frequently forgotten. Now, in the ancient world, there wasn't a standard numbering of the Psalms, and so, in fact, the first words of the Psalm functioned as its title. So when our Lord says, my, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's, he's citing the title of this entire Psalm. Now, the interesting thing is when you go back to Psalm 22 and read it through, you find that it does not end with despair and abandonment. It ends with triumph with uh, thanksgiving, with the poor uh, eating and being satisfied and God's glory being proclaimed to future generations. And so when we, when we try to understand our Lord's words uh, from the cross, we have to keep in mind he's evoking the whole context of Psalm 22. Our Lord surely knew how that psalm was going to end. So yes, our Lord is suffering on the cross, but it's not a suffering that lacks hope. It's a, it's a suffering that is well aware of future victory as God is going to vindicate his son through the resurrection. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester I had sacraments with Dr. Hahn. And uh, I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. Every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Talking about the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with our special guest, Dr. Michael Terrian, and we're particularly focusing on the popes, Joseph Ratzinger's Pope Benedict XVI's book, Jesus of Nazareth. So we want to pick up on a core point here. Uh, Jesus prayed that the cup pass and they not have to undergo the suffering. Why do we have to undergo the suffering? I mean, if he prayed to get out of it, why can't we get out of it? Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, Of course, he didn't get out. (laughs) Right, he didn't. Yeah, Yeah, in fact, uh, I think uh, what we learned from from all of that is uh, that uh, he really passes through suffering 
uh, for us in the sense that he really he blazes a trail. Uh, he opens up an opportunity for us to uh, experience suffering and death in a way that becomes redemptive for us. And uh, what we see really in Jesus' death and self-offering is really the supreme and definitive uh, sign of his obedience to the Heavenly Father and also his profound love for us. And um, he provides us with an opportunity, I think, in our own suffering and in the crosses that we bear in our own life uh, to be able to make an offering of ourselves as well uh, in a very profound way to the Father and also to one another. So he's saying, thy will be done, yeah, that's even right. though it doesn't feel good. Right, exactly. <laughs> and what, what Pope Benedict is doing in illuminating this mystery is brilliant and yet clear and accessible to anybody who just reads it carefully. Because on the one hand, you know, he shows us that when Jesus assumed our humanity, it wasn't, you know, like uh, putting on a, a garment. It wasn't like a hand puppet. Oh, you know, I'll assume the outward form of human nature. No, he entered our human nature from the depth of our own interiority. I mean, then he shows us in the garden that despite the fact that he has our humanity in its unfallenness, still the real truth of human nature is that it shrinks from the prospect of suffering, especially that yeah. kind of suffering. Right. You know, the brutality of a Roman execution which they had perfected in the torture of crucifixion. You know, it, it would be natural for us, but it was natural for him. And yet what is supernatural, what's so beautiful, is that the human will wills what love, the divine will, wills. And I mean, it's like, it's not just, okay, fine, I, I will comply. It's a total identification of our human nature, of our human will, with that love right. which is godlike. Yeah. You know, so the key is, we're not saying this is a religion where you seek out all the suffering you can find, but you seek out all the will of God you can find, right. That's right. and you walk through the suffering. That's right. So it's not health and wealth and prosperity right. on the one yeah. hand, nor is it masochism right. on the other. But, but there's but no love. way. There's no way you can bypass the cross. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, the the hideousness of uh, of Roman crucifixion was such that uh, Cicero, for example, uh, uh, advised uh, civilized Romans never even to think about it because it was so unspeakable, so uh, horrifying. And the church reeled, I, I think, in horror from it for about four or five centuries. Uh, Apparently, it wasn't until the fifth century uh, in the church of Santa Sabina that the church would countenance uh, any symbolic depiction of, uh, of the crucifixion. I mean, that's how repellent it was, uh, uh, how, how awful, how horrific. Right. And, and that, that phrase that, that you used of passing through is, is a highly evocative one. It, it reminds me of, of Pegues, uh, scathing dismissal of, of Dante, who he said passed through the lower regions of the divine comedy like a tourist. He was indifferent right. to the sufferings of, of those who had but, to endure them. Christ wasn't a tourist. He took on that suffering. Yeah. He entered so deeply into it that he owned it. He identified himself with it. Yeah, and yet, and yet it, it, it would make no sense for him to do that if it wasn't 
for the sake of that which he was moving towards, right. yeah. which is the new creation, yeah. uh, the resurrection, uh, the eternal beatitude of the yeah. blessed in heaven. So it isn't that suffering is an end in itself or something we seek for its own sake, but it's something that, that we receive as a way yeah. of undergoing a kind of transformation, a birthing process. And we really see this even in the Old Testament. When you look at the story of, of Israel's uh, passing um, out of the slavery of Egypt and through the desert to the promised land. You have a, a sort of paradigm here for the Paschal mystery because what we realize is that the, the process of, 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 of freedom, of being liberated from sin and from the, the, the kind of servitude that really de dehumanizes us requires a process of suffering because suffering is what humbles us and gives us the capacity to be able to uh, make a profession of faith and adhere to the divine will in our lives so that God can bring us to where He really wants us to be, which is in communion and love with Him. Yeah. So, key is meekness. Yeah. Humility. Yeah, yes. humility. Littleness. Right. Poverty. Yeah. Well, the key is love. I mean, well, right. because yeah. love by itself yeah can just be empty feelings and emotion. Right. Suffering by itself can be unendurable and despair. You know, but, but love without suffering is sentimentality. Suffering without love is agony. But love is what transforms suffering into sacrifice, into self-donation. Yeah. And I think that's, the, that's what he decodes in such a way that you know, it, it isn't that Good Friday is just simply a display of divine wrath against our sin. It is a display of divine love right. that, you know, God's love is sort of like the sunlight that meets the, the icy, cold sin of human nature and melts it in a way that is just utterly unexpected. Yeah, right. Yeah, he loved them to the last, yeah, to right. the end. He marches to the finite, to the, you know, to the very limit of, of finite human pain and, and, and somehow encompasses it with this infinite capacity to love. Those two little words that Latin Christendom inserted into the creed, pro nobis, are so important right. for our sake, uh, in our place, right. not just on our behalf, but in our stead. He took our place, a real substitution. Right. So, uh, right. But a lot yet, of people would say, therefore, I don't have to do it. Well, right, but it's not substitutionary in the sense that, Replacing. like, you know, uh, he, he took, he took the uh, punishment and so I don't. Right. But in, in a sense, uh, from within the mystery of his own suffering, what, uh, what uh, Christ really unleashes upon the world is the power and the capacity and the ability to uh, detach ourselves from the very things which really are the cause of our right. suffering, right. which is our inordinate desire to, uh, to live for the world, to live for the flesh, to live for the things of this life which are corruptible and passing away. And part of the process of suffering in our redemption is that, you know, when, when push comes to shove, it's very painful to, to learn how to detach from the, the world of the flesh and to really adhere to the much greater things that the Lord calls us to because those things are more mysterious, they're more invisible, they're more hidden from us, whereas you know, the world is on display in neon lights all around us right. all the time. So yeah. suffering, is, is, it's got many yeah. dimensions to right. it. So Christ sort of enters that. And right. Pro nobis is yeah. the key though, because it's for us. It's not simply instead of us. Right. You know? So there are some versions out there that are purely substitutionary. Jesus suffered and died as a substitute. Jesus obeyed right. as a substitute. Right. So while we should obey, we don't have to, 
while we may have to suffer, we shouldn't have, you I know. Mean, and and what, what, what Pope Benedict does is to show us that the pro nobis, the for us, is really representative. He does it, not instead of us, he does it so that now we can. So it's our representative that he does it when we couldn't, and now we can because he has. Yeah, he, he blazes yeah. this trail yeah, it's uh, participating. the forest yeah. of, of suffering and pain. Yeah. And, and Father Michael, uh, I think, really hit on it with the word meekness, yeah. which I think is, is sort of like humility. And, and Eliot says the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. It's endless. And what does humility remind us of? We're creatures, we're given. We come out of the dirt, we return to the dirt, and we need to acknowledge our status in relation to God who is not a creature. When we don't do that, we feel pain. We, we, we experience a kind of estrangement and alienation from who we are. Jesus had to enter into that estrangement to set things right. I mean, he right. writes straight but, with crooked pencils. Right, yeah, and, you know, but he, uh, but even in, uh, the, the acknowledgement and the recognition of the, you know, the complete otherness of God and uh, His total sovereignty over our lives, all of that has been placed at, uh, at our service. All of that is still for us. I mean, why does God create us in the first place? Well, it's His good pleasure, it seems, right. to just simply share His goodness and Himself with us. But the problem is, is that we don't always want to accept the gift right. as a gift. Yeah. You know, it feels sometimes in our brokenness as a burden. Yeah. But in fact, it really is true liberation. It's true happiness. And, and so Christ, in, in a way, He enters into the mystery of that, that no and that rejection, right. and He turns it into a yes. Right, right, yes. You know, yes. He, he you know Isaac, Isaac Beshevis, uh, singer, the great uh, Hebrew, uh, novelist said, God uh, created because he loves to tell stories. That's why he made the world. But when the story uh, came to grief, uh, he enters the story himself right. uh, and it turns out well. I'm glad you returned to the notion of meekness because when you said yeah. that, you know, and I, I countered it with love, it, yeah. you know, it's not love and not meekness, it's that love that can't be expressed apart from meekness, yeah. humility, and obedience. And that to me is the challenge for us, to, to look into the face of Christ and to see God, but not divine domination, yeah. which is natural for us yeah. to think, yeah. but divine donation, where the donum, the gift right. of God is not just right. a beautiful world, the gift of God is the giver of the gifts. Yeah. It's God's own being, it's God's own life. I mean, if I were God, I would certainly lord it over my yeah, son. Right. Yeah. I'd sure be would. in charge, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and, and I'd wave that scimitar, yeah, right. you know? Yeah, and in fact, I think when we reflect on our own experience, we, we can see that in a small way, we do kind of right. do this, as, right. especially as, as married men who have children. Yeah. I mean, we do take that risk. Speak we bring, for yourself. <laughs> we bring children into the world. My children not lord really it knowing. over me. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, we don't really know what the response That's will right. be That's in right. our children. Yeah. And so, I, to come back to this point about littleness, I think it is the, the connection between littleness and love. To be little in the Lord, to be poor, and to be humble is the key to receiving divine love, but it's also the key to giving it. There's no way that we can love if we aren't, if we aren't really a receptacle of that divine love. The other love. way is strength. Where do you get the strength to do the love, yeah. to be faithful? Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah, in my weakness, I am strong. Right. I mean, you know, Jesus says things like, before Abraham came to be, I am. And when he's challenged, uh, he doesn't strut his stuff. He submits <laughs> right. in silence, humility. He allows these denials, these contradictions to crush him. 
in order to show that out of this profound humility of heart, the great majesty of God will emerge. You know, well, the, we're going to come back and pick up this. Okay. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. And Pilate saying, what is truth? And Jesus answering all that. So stay with us. When Jesus is finally publicly acknowledged as king, it's when he's on the cross and when the uh, title is placed above his head. This is the king of the Jews, public acknowledgement of his kingship. But we have an irony in that his throne is a cross. Uh, nonetheless, that's a symbol of the Christian life. Our throne is going to be our cross. In particular, during Holy Week, uh, we need to embrace the cross, and that can be put into practice in basic ways. Uh, fasting, almsgiving, the uh, traditional mortifications of the church. Uh, this is a week in which we can make an additional sacrifice to learn to embrace the cross. It's by embracing our cross that we learn to reign, reign over our passions, reign over our desires, learn to control our bodies, our minds. In that way, we become kings, just like our, our great king and Lord Jesus Christ, who was acknowledged as king when he accepted and embraced his cross. My name is Kelly Butler and I'm a communication arts major. I took independent digital filmmaking. Definitely intense. Many all-nighters in the editing lab getting things done. Pope John Paul II has a quote, Do not be afraid to go out into the streets and into public places to preach Christ like the first apostles. That's what we're called to as Catholics and as Christians. You have that responsibility that every work you create should reflect Christ. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We're here at Franciscan University, surrounded by our students running the equipment with our regular panelists, Dr. Hahn and, and Dr. Regis Martin, and with our graduate and old friend, Dr. Michael Turnian. And we're talking about the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, key to this whole thing is, is that we accept the truth of what is revealed. That indeed, um, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? You know, and today, you can read about that every day. Just pick up a magazine or something, what's truth? I mean, it could be this, it could be that, it could be various opinions. Uh, and I, we want to talk about that, which deal with why is relativism so undermining to faith today? And uh, uh, why is it so pervasive? How do you see it? Yeah. Well, I would, uh, I would say that the biggest problem is that it, it makes ourselves the ground of all things. Uh, and when we place ourselves at the center of our own yeah. lives yeah. Then, uh, and make ourselves really the rule and measure of our conduct and how we live, mm. uh, then uh, we find, I think, quite practically that we get our lives pretty messed up and uh, we can make a mess not only of our lives but of the, you know, the world and our families, our communities and whatnot. Um, you know, truth is, uh, truth is the greatest safeguard uh, for the dignity of every human person yeah. because it, it, it provides uh, a highest court of appeals <laughs> to yeah. which ah. in our social relations and in our re interactions with each other, uh, at the end of the day, we have 
something to appeal to which holds all of us accountable uh, before God for how we live. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, somebody said that barbarism is simply the absence of a standard uh, to which any man may appeal, this absolute horizon against which you measure what you think, what your opinions happen to be. I mean, Jesus pretty effectively pulls the rug uh, out from under the relativist claim. He doesn't present himself as a relative truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. He relativizes every other claim. He's absolute, an absolutely singular uh, guy. See, there are two orders that are so interrelated and interpenetrated, yet distinct. One is human, the other is divine. One is in time, the other is eternal. And one is, 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 is expressed on election day. The other one is expressed on the last day. You know? And yeah. so the truth of an election result is not the final truth. And I think what Pope Benedict does so well is to show the icon named Pontius Pilate, that he yeah. really is an image of not just politicians, but economists and leaders who see the only truth as pragmatism. You know, yeah. what will get me elected? What will get the economy through the present distress? You know, and they don't step back and with prayer and detachment recognize, okay, how should time relate to eternity? Yeah. How should humans relate to God? How has God chosen to relate to us? You know, and so the irony is that when Pilate asks what is truth, standing before him is the incarnation yeah. of the one who is the truth, the way, and the life. You know, and what's, what's really, uh, you know, picking up on this, the politicking, the, you know, in, in our political order today, we love to relativize the truth. But what are we really doing? What's, what's, what's that veiling? It's really an attempt to absolutize this life, to absolutize the state, to absolutize the values of this right. world. And yet... Uh, because there's nothing else. Well, right. right. That We're absolutizing what is relative right. and relativizing and so, and, what is and absolute. So, and yeah. so there's lots of cries for freedom, but it's really not about freedom, it's about tyranny. There's lots of cries for a kind of you have your truth, I have my truth, but it's very dogmatic. You know, right. uh, these people would go to the death. Right. Uh, they're, they're martyrs of their own cause. Uh, and so again, you know, the whole interaction between Pilate and, and Christ is very fascinating because uh, in a sense, Christ is challenging Pilate to look beyond right, right the right. interests of Rome, even the interests of his own little province there that he's governing. He's, he's a fascinating figure, uh, Pilate, in the New Testament. Nietzsche said he was the only gentleman uh, in all of Scripture. There is something fastidious about him, washing his hands of this mess. I want nothing to do with it. And yet he's complicit. Right. in the crucifixion of God himself. Yeah. You know, Guardini has, has a great distinction. He says, at the end of the day, the sin of Cain and the sin of Pilate are the same. They're indistinguishable in the sight of God. Cain killed somebody, his brother, yeah. but Pilate would not, would not interfere or prevent the killing of his own brother, who turns out to be God. Right. I mean, just well, and an amazing. He, and what you notice, too, is, is that he, he says, uh, you know, in the hubris here, uh, you know, I have the authority yeah. to yeah. release you. Yeah. And Christ's response really is what puts the truth right before yeah, him. Yeah, like, no. you, you don't have any authority right, except right. for what, 
for all intents and purposes, I have right. given you. Right. And yeah. so go ahead and carry out what this, this deed that you're going yeah. to do. But here's the great paradox of salvation history is that it is precisely because Christ submits himself yeah. to the authorities that he himself establishes yeah. that he is able to truly liberate us right. and truly bring us into yeah. his kingdom. Well, that's, this is, that's true, but as we struggle through this Holy Week time and passion, the biting question as we see all the suffering of Jesus, was all this necessary? Why did the Father have to let all this happen, you know, to Jesus? Yeah. You know, that, that question should bug us yeah. because at one level, God could simply have forgiven us right. the way Allah does in Islamic religion. Hmm. And yet, just to forgive sinners for their sin is only dealing with the symptoms because the sins are the result of a disordered condition within, which is really the rejection of a love that is self-giving. And so only by entering into the wretchedness of our own human weakness and mortality can he take out sin at its source. You know, and that's why when God scripts the drama of our salvation, he doesn't just arrange the usual suspects, you know, in terms of Pilate, who's the pragmatist, yeah. Herod and his vanity, you know, Caiaphas in his cowering fear. Uh, he, he really enters into the drama of our own experience and sort of, uh, he doesn't erase our sin so much as to completely turn it around and, and harness all the energies that we have wasted in sinning and not trusting. Yeah, well, he takes that energy and makes it love. So, you know, Jesus doesn't sit there blaming Pilate and the others, but he does say, God, why did you forsake me? Yeah. Why? And, and that's the most penetrating line in Scripture yeah. that Jesus well, could get to that point. He wasn't just saying, oh, well, I have to give more. I've got to give it all for me, you know. Well, that, I, I mean, that allows that. God to say to the sinner, uh, the defiant uh, 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 sinner who chooses despair over against paradise, that allows God to say to him, my son himself experienced a kind of despair. He went the extra mile. He felt forsaken. He entered into the abandonment that you now use as a weapon to beat me with. He knows yeah. the extremity of loss. It's not an intellectual transaction. He took ownership of your fear, your suffering, your desolation and redeemed it from within, from below. And Pope Benedict is really trying to center on getting us through that question yeah. and walking with Jesus to come out. Right, the other that side. The other side. And I mean, to sort of tie this back to what was said earlier, you know, the letter of the Hebrews says that Christ learned obedience by what he suffered. And of course, we don't for a second think that he had to actually learn obedience as yeah. the Son of God, but in a sense, he had to enter into the reality of that obedience yeah. uh, because that's precisely what releases the power and the efficacy of love. It, it, it's a staggering uh, a paradox. Uh. Here is the word unable to speak a word. I mean, at, in his incarnation, he has to learn the alphabet. Joseph has to teach him how to hold a, a hammer, drive a nail. 
he does, in a way, learn, oh, oh, he learns obedience through suffering. It, it's all part of this rhythm of kenosis, this complete self-emptying. Well, and yet Thomas points out, Aquinas points out, that it's not how much he suffered that saves us primarily, right. it's how much he loves. Right. Yeah. And it's the love that transforms the suffering, once again, into sacrifice. Right. Yeah. So that it's, it's a genuine love, yeah. And it's a genuine suffering, yeah. you know, and it's not like I'm going to suffer a little bit so I know how it feels. You know, theologians debate whether Jesus experienced the torment of the damned. I'm convinced that he didn't experience the torment of the damned. He experienced something much greater because love doesn't uh. diminish our capacity to suffer. Uh. It enlarges it. Right. And, and when it comes yeah. to divine love being poured out into Jesus' humanity, Jesus is capable of loving like no man ever did, and therefore he is capable of suffering not just more quantitatively, but more qualitatively, more redemptively. And as a result, he is not just transforming our human nature, he is divinizing it. So it becomes the instrument for us. And that's, many times in life we feel that's a big leap. Yeah, it's always. And so Pope Benedict uses Our Lady Married to kind of express uh, her role, right? And her, and she is a bridge to right. this, right? Well, she's present at the at the foot of the cross, yeah. and she is uh, she fully enters into the mystery of Christ's suffering and shares in that suffering, really in a way that no other human being can. Yeah, it's right. unprecedented. Yeah, she's yeah. present and active, right? And no less active than he is, yeah. right? And, and her consent is required. Right. And I think, you know, we can also reflect on this from a very human perspective that, uh, you know, oftentimes we think, well, why would the father give up his son? That's, you know, why doesn't he suffer? But Uh, as a father, I can say that it would be far worse to have my children die. I would much rather be in their place. So there's a sense in which uh, uh, this great, and so from Mary's perspective, you know, we have a similar thing going on with Mary's. Yeah, the the parable of the prodigal son, I I think, uh, opens up depths of, uh, of mystery that, that, that cry out for exegesis. The father is God who sends his son into the suffering of the prodigal. He's the narrator who knows the pain that this poor man endures. And the father waits in suffering for the eventual return of this prodigal, this wayward son. But his real son, Jesus, is right there yeah. uh, in that, in that and, brokenness. And I, would, I wanna tie this back to what we, we, where we started about my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, you know, Christ is quoting Psalm 22 yeah. there. And if you read through that Psalm, the way the Psalm ends is it's really a proclamation of faith. So to tie this yeah. in with the prodigal son, what you have is yeah. you have Jesus sort of assuming the position of the prodigal, the one who's completely lost and, and in the mire, so to speak, and coming to his senses and returning to the Father. But Christ is bearing yeah. that prodigal humanity back to the Father. Yeah, that restoration yeah. ends in a party, right. a celebration. Right. And Psalm 22 ends yeah. on a note of Easter triumph. Right. But you, we need Our Lady as a bridge right. to connect with this, so it's not another worldliness so much that we can't. That's right. Be part of it. And I mean, she is giving consent, not just to the death of her son. She's giving consent to her own spiritual motherhood and not just of the beloved disciple. She's giving consent to becoming the spiritual mother of her own son's crucifiers. Yeah. I mean, there is a love that we need because then no matter how we have failed, we know that she will take us in. And while his body was being pierced by the lance, her soul was being pierced by the sword of divine love 
no less. I mean, when we get close to Our Lady, that's the only safe way to get close to our Lord. Yeah, and I mean, she really is the, the consoler. I mean, she's the one who, in the midst of her own struggles and difficulties, yeah. comes to, uh, yeah, to, comes to comfort us as she comforted her son, not only when it's hard to be good, but also when we're feeling the pain of our own sin. Like, that's when it counts the most, that we, we really uh, encounter the mother of mercy, because she is the one who says, it's okay, you can we can move through this. That's right. I can change yeah. your diaper. So, uh, <laughs> right, right. But I mean, talking about living all this, not just knowing it, yeah. and uh, therefore when we come back, yeah. we want some final comments on how you and how we can grab onto this more and launch into following Jesus this way. My name is Michael Villanueva. I'm majoring in philosophy and theology. Last semester, I had sacraments with Dr. Hahn, and uh, I'll tell you right now, it was the best class of my entire life. A every class, I'm just knocked out of my chair. It hits me like a ton of bricks. The beauty of the truth that he's speaking to us. Something so simple, but so beautiful and so profound and so powerful. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We come to the last segment on this uh, show on the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus with our special guest, Dr. Michael Terrian. And so we'll ask our panelists for final takeaway thoughts and things that can enable us to absorb and live what we've been talking about today. Regis. Well, uh, an awful lot comes to mind. Uh, it, it's difficult to sort out where one should, should start. But uh, I often tell my, my students that uh, each of us uh, is the recipient of uh, a double blessing. We're given in nature, and then we are forgiven in grace. Uh, and the events of this week, I, I think, commemorate that second gift. Right. Uh, entirely, totally gratuitous. God did not have to go to the cross. Uh, he, he could have uh, annihilated us. That's what I would have done. Uh, I've had enough. Uh, the, the show's over. Uh, you know, the bar is closed. Uh, everybody goes home. But no, I mean, he, he takes ownership yeah. of, of uh, the damage we've done. He enters into it and delivers us from the hell of being human. And that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, Ratzinger speaks of this staggering alliance of Logos and Sarks. He's the Word, uh, and he reveals the very profundity of the Godhead, and yet at the same time, he enters into the depth of the human. What does it mean to be lost, to suffer, to be broken? Well, ask Jesus. Look at Jesus on, on the cross as he hangs in agony, uh, and that agony will continue until the end of the world. John of the Cross, let me end with, with him, uh, this stellar uh, uh, spokesman for the mystery uh, in the ascent of Mount Carmel, uh, tells us that when God spoke his word into the world, he didn't have any other word to speak. He, he sort of shot his wad. There was nothing else to say. This yeah. inexhaustible word, a single syllable, and it somehow encompasses the whole alphabet of being. And the Pope is enshrining uh, this word in the pages of his book. And it seems to me that for Catholics who don't read the scriptures uh, and scripture scholars who don't reverence what they read, 
This is a book that not only reads the scriptures from the inside and unpacks them in this this profound uh, and subtle uh, exegetical uh, uh, way, but venerates, reverences all that he reads. He's the perfect perfect model uh, for the Christian. Go buy the book. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, he's talking about this book. Go buy it, and there's good reason for it. Scott? Well, I want to pick up right where you left off, and that is get the book. It's already a bestseller. Make it a better bestseller. (laughs) Uh, And read it. I remember talking to my wife, Kimberly, in the middle of a really busy time. She read it. She's like blown away by how clear and how deep it was and how much it made her want to pray more and better. Uh, Uh, You know, this, I think, is the moment where we can see from... Palm Sunday through Good Friday. You know, what was an apparent success is exposed as an illusion. And what is an apparent failure, you know, is suddenly shown to be the fulfillment of all our hopes. And in between, we have, we have the upper room. We have Holy Thursday. And then we have the Garden of Gethsemane to relive. Then we have the trial. Then the Via Dolorosa. The second thing I would say besides read this is pray the Stations of the Cross. Uh, Enter into those various stages where sadness and fear and anger and grief are suddenly transformed, not by being avoided, but by being taken in and transformed. And be willing to say in your prayer to our Lord, why have you forsaken me? You know, be honest, be transparent, but be trusting and know that Easter Sunday is not just back in the first century, it's for us in the 21st. Okay, good. I, I, well, always enjoy, Michael. Yeah. I always enjoy going after the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> what more is there to say? Yeah. But uh, it was a year ago that I picked this book up and read it during Holy Week and uh, the first week of Easter. And in particular, throughout the Easter Triduum, uh, I spent many hours reading as I was praying through uh, that, that time of our liturgical year. And it was a profound experience for me. What became so evident was how deeply Pope Benedict really knows Christ, Uh, not just as theologian, but far more importantly, uh, as a human being who's been redeemed by uh, the the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ, and someone who doesn't just know him or know about him, but who really knows him intimately, almost as if in some ways he was there, you know, he was the beloved disciple, you know, present at all the critical moments of Jesus' passion. There's something very uh, special, I think, about this book for us today in our time because we we have the opportunity to encounter Christ in really an entirely new way, to shed light on the Gospels so that when we meditate on the Gospels, we really know what what's what's being said there. We understand who uh, who this person Jesus uh, Christ is, and uh, not only for history but for us personally in our own lives. And I think more than ever, I can't think of another time in the last 2,000 years of history that we have more needed to know who Christ is. Uh, the world is, is, uh, is suffering profoundly in so many ways for a lack of light, for a lack of love, and uh, Jesus is the answer. There, there's just no other way to turn. Uh, there's no other one to whom we can go to find the words of everlasting life that are really going to deliver us from this present darkness that we live in. So I, I would just say, you know, read the book, meditate it, 
on it. Read it again and again. Yeah. And, um, and read it slowly. And for those who aren't theologians, just ignore the theologians' names in the books because they, in the end, don't matter all that much. <laughs> it's really the takeaway point that the Pope wants to give us that matters. Um, so, and I just would end with, with you know, uh, Pope Benedict's own words when he says to us that, um, you know, trust in the Lord because he takes nothing away and he gives us everything. So. Well, thank you, Dr. Michael Tarion. Thank you for all that you're doing and teaching and leading in this area. And yes, this is the book, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict. It's, I usually get absorbed in it in Holy Week and have trouble coming out in time for my other priestly duties. And it has power. We need that freshness, that freshness of from a man of prayer, a scholar, and a man of the Holy Spirit who isn't just repeating, but is taking us more deeply into the great mysteries that are the center of our life and existence and the center of our Holy Week. And so go deeper this Holy Week, really. You don't have to repeat exactly what you've done before. You can go deeper, think of, Jesus telling the disciples to cast your nets out further and that they will find the fruit. And we need to keep casting to receive more of God's wisdom, more of the power of the Holy Spirit, and live more faithfully as true disciples and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our call, it's our vocation. And so, Till next time, may the Lord bless you as disciples, call you forth, empower you, bring you closer. And we have a handout for just contacting us, finding Christ in the Pope's Jesus of Nazareth, which will tell you what you need that can launch you deeper. The Lord bless you and keep you. Show his face to you and have mercy on you. Turn his countenance to you and give you his peace. May the Lord bless you, he who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go forth as disciples of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu. Or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.